The theme for our study in First Peter has been purity and joy in suffering, God's comfort and instruction to us in First Peter. You know, one of the great misconceptions that young Christ followers uh, often have, especially in a country like ours where persecution is very limited in scope, persecution for one's faith is very limited in scope. The misconception is that that, that once one decides to follow Jesus, then everything's going to be great. I mean, absolutely great. Most of your troubles are over. Even if you have troubles, you can handle it because Jesus is in charge of your life. And while that's true to an extent, there's this false sense of expectation that everything is going to be so easy and everything's going to go smoothly. Actually, since the name of Jesus engenders so much vitriol in, in our society today, not all segments of our society, but certainly in some segments of our society, then a choice to follow Jesus can lead to a more difficult life. And one must actually prepare for a greater than normal life of trouble. That may be, that may have to do with, with things irrespective of one's witness for Christ. It could be that Satan attacks us physically in other ways, as we see so many times in Scripture, and we'll refer to a little bit uh, this morning. But trials and suffering of all kinds, including persecution, are no reason for us to mope around or to revert to secret sins in an effort to ease the pain. A trial should instead drive us to the one who will give us a reason for joy and the power to live pure lives even in a difficult time. Today's concluding text in the book of First Peter includes the last nine verses in chapter 5, verses 6 to 14. But since the context of, uh, of this text goes back to the, the verses before, especially the, the latter part of verse 5, we're going to read the whole chapter First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And if you would, please stand, as is our custom here. And we will read First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish you 
To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus or Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you, briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, peace to all of you who are in Christ. We have just celebrated the birth of our Savior. A a, a birth that was difficult in so many ways. And as Jesus had humbled himself to become one of us, he was headed for the cross. But it's that cross that gives us life. And brings us peace with you and peace with one another. So, Father, as we hear from you one last time through this particular letter, although we'll be hearing from you for all eternity, But as we hear from you in the ways that you directed Peter through your Holy Spirit to write, not only to those in Asia Minor, those churches in Asia Minor, but to us today, we pray that our hearts would be keen to receive your word, that we would be, Lord, our hearts would be tuned to your encouragement and your comfort, how to live in a A difficult world, a a world that is often perplexing and confusing. We recognize, we acknowledge your sovereignty and we submit to you. And yet, at the same time, we obey your command to actively pursue Jesus. And actively resist the one who comes against us. Help it to make sense to us, Lord, this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, I don't know if you picked up on it as we read through uh, this text this morning. There are a couple of commands that, that seem to be contradictory. It's not, not that they're contradictory, but it's difficult to make sense. They're perplexing at times. And it, it's that way often in Scripture. It seems like the Lord is saying one thing, and then over here it seems like He's saying another. And, and we recognize that both are true, but they're bigger than we are able to, to wrap our minds around. And I want to tell you that as we look at some of these uh, perplexing commands that, that stand side by side this morning. Next week from Colossians chapter 1, the end of the book, we're going to try to continue uh, along this theme of suffering and its purposes and the way that we live a life that's pleasing to the Lord in obedience and yet submission to the Spirit and the, and the Son working through us without which we have no hope of getting to that place that God wants us to be. In this text this morning, at first, Peter is telling us, and this is on top of everything that's been said to this point, that trials that come our way, persecution and trials are inevitable for Christians, and that we should humbly accept the life to which God calls us. And yet, then he turns right around and and commands us to resist Satan, who is clearly the instigator of many of the attacks that come our way. Let's read verses 5b through 9 again. Actually, you know, the guys that that split up the verses weren't inspired, and this should be the beginning. 5b should be the beginning of a new verse and a new paragraph. 
clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That's an awesome verse, isn't it? Casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. All your anxieties actually is a little more precise, which is what I love about the ESV. It is very precise and very accurate translation. Be sober-minded, especially you Presbyterians. Just be sober, the Presbyterians that are amongst us, and Episcopalians and Anglicans. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Stuff we're struggling with, it's, it's, it's not unique to us. It's going on everywhere. And, and, and in the same way that misery loves company, we are sometimes comforted to know that the kind of stuff we're experiencing is going on everywhere. Actually, a lot more difficult circumstances are going on around the world for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And oh, how we need to remember to pray, as Hebrews tells us, remember those who are in chains. Remember the persecuted body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in the Sudan and North Korea and Saudi Arabia, so many places around the world where our brothers and sisters are experiencing far greater persecution than, than are we. Well, let's just let's go through this text and, and, and deal with the truth as we find it. For starters, in verse 5, we're commanded to clothe ourselves with humility. When we put our clothes on in the morning, what a great time to just say, Lord, clothe me with humility this day. He knows we're going to need it this day. Every single day, we need to be humble, don't we? I mean, every single day we have opportunities in which we can choose to be humble or to be proud. We need for the Lord to clothe us with humility in the morning. And this is especially important because God opposes the proud, but delights in giving grace to those who humble themselves before Him. God resists the proud. Can you, can you get that concept in your mind? I mean, let's, let's just imagine that we say, all right, we're going to have another meeting. The meeting didn't go as well as we wanted a few weeks ago, the church meeting, which it did, by the way. went wonderful. It was a wonderful day. But it didn't go as well as we want, so we're going to ask uh, Rick Palmer and Pat Garner and Mark Petro to, to get by the doors back there, and nobody gets out until we're done with the meeting. And if you try to get out, these guys are going to resist you. Now, what do you think the chances are of you getting out if those guys really do their job like they should and resist you? Not very good. You're not getting out if they're resisting you. Do you ever think about the fact that when you are proud and when your pride overtakes you, and so consequently you are engaging with people from a position of, I'm going to beat you on this. You're not going to get the best of me. That God is resisting you. You may win this game, but you're not winning that one. It's not a game, I understand, but we may be winning horizontally, but we're not winning vertically. And you know what? Ultimately, we're going to lose big time horizontally. 
God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. It's all grace, right? It is, absolutely is. We're going to see this over and over this morning. And yet, if you want to be in a position to receive grace, be humble. Be humble. And, and God's grace will rain down on, on you. You know, most often we struggle with pride when we feel like someone has slighted us or ridiculed us or, or done us wrong. I, you know, we even feel, we, we struggle with pride when we, when we just, when we're not looking and we run into the door, you know, and really bop ourselves good. I, I remember one time, it's the first time I can remember, I'm sure I did before, but I remember I was out on the golf course when I was a teenager. And, you know, I was right by the sand trap and the rake was sitting up the wrong way and I stepped on that rake and BAM! It hit me and I just, whoa, I was mad about it. I didn't like it, you know, and I'm thinking, what's the deal about that? I mean, what are you, what are you mad about? But that's just the way we are. It's pride. We don't like anything to happen to us that, that puts us in a position where we look bad or, or where we feel stupid and so we react the wrong way. And especially when we feel like someone has slighted us. You know, we put on that air of, you you don't know who you're messing with here. You better watch your step. You, you know the deal. Now, we need to make a distinction here. If a brother or sister in Christ has absolutely done us wrong, it might be a matter for the elders to consider. To look into, and in extreme cases, church discipline may be actually initiated at some level anyway. But when we're persecuted from without the church, we saw this several years ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. When those who are outside the church come at us, that's when we turn the other cheek. That's when we humbly accept this as from the hand of God. And, and we need to yield to the Lord in humility and let Him take care of the problem. In fact, that ought to be most often the case when we feel like we've been slighted within the body. Not everything is a is an offense that needs to be corrected. Look, if you if you want to correct, if you want to call everybody to account who does something to you, how about if people start calling you to account? You say, "Well, that wasn't my fault." Well, it's all a matter of perception many times anyway. You know, fairness. God doesn't promise it. What's fair to you is not fair to me. We've talked about that lots before. Justice is what God promises. But when we get play, start playing the fairness game, we get in big trouble. So even when someone within the church says something hurtful to us, we should just leave it in the Lord's hands. Why? Well, according to verses 5 and 6, when the actions of others cause us to struggle with resentment and anger that's caused by pride, we are, and, and, and we fight against them, we are first and foremost fighting against God. We don't think about that. We think about, I want justice here and God wants justice. And so I'm going to take, no, God has called us to this place. And he expects us to yield to him in humility and let him Take care of the problem. Far better to humble ourselves before Him and receive His grace than to be fighting against God and having Him resisting us. It is impossible to live any kind of life that is pleasing to God without His grace. Now, verse 6 promises that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then He will exalt us 
at the proper time. Now, I hate to tell you that doesn't mean what you want it to mean. It doesn't mean what I want it to mean, which is that if someone is doing something really nasty to me and I just humble myself and keep keep quiet before the Lord, then in due time, the Lord will show all big mouth who's really right in this situation. You know, and he'll take care of me. He will exalt me in the sense that everybody knows I was right all along, but I was humble before the Lord. It's not what it means. For starters, the proper time for exaltation is not guaranteed in this life. What Peter is saying is, there's going to be a day when all rights, all wrongs are made right. And that's when Jesus comes back. That's when Jesus rules with complete and utter authority. That's when he takes care of all the wrongs and makes them right. I mean, I remember, Peter was writing to persecuted men and women, many of whom, would die horrible deaths within five to six years. Horrible deaths. Things didn't work out for them as they desired. So this promise is that one day all wrongs will be made right, even if we never see it in this life. You know, having said that, though, humility resulting in exaltation is clearly a biblical principle. And it seems to be generally a pattern that is true about life in general, whether people know the Lord or not. It is especially so in the church. I, I don't know about you, but often when I have a problem, I, I, I sense the Holy Spirit saying to me, okay, you got two choices. You can deal with this or I can deal with this. And it's kind of like, you know, he waits a few seconds and he says, okay, I see you're going to deal with this then I'll step back and let you have at it. What a shame. When more often than not, when I step back and let him deal with it, he takes care of it. Now, there's no promise for that. And it doesn't always happen. But it does seem to be the pattern that the Lord uses. And I don't know why it is that we are so hard-headed and it takes us so long to learn to just submit and leave All of this in his hands. So we're called to be humble and to submit to trials and suffering that our sovereign God brings into our lives. Right? Right! Indeed, we are to cast our cares and troubles on on the Lord because he cares for us. Now, since Peter is talking about trials that have to be faced with humility and suffering and, and persecution... He's telling us to trust ourselves and trust ourselves to him no matter what the circumstances. Once again, we ask the question, why? Well, there are two reasons. One, God is sovereign. Two, God cares. We can rest. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? We can rest in his perfect plan and care no matter what happens. But that doesn't mean we are to live passive lives. You know, one of the great temptations for those of us who believe strongly in the sovereignty of, of God is to develop a fatalistic outlook on life. Well, you know, God's determined everything that's going to happen. Whatever's going to be will be, so I guess I'll just have to accept that. There's some truth in that, but if, if, if that's the extent of the way that we, 
we, we view our life and our relationship with the Lord, there's not going to be any joy in that fatalistic kind of outlook on life, nor will there be a vibrant spiritual life and God calls for joy and a vibrant spiritual life, even in a time of persecution. That's why in verses 8 to 9, we're told to be clear-minded and on alert. The Greek word for watchful, gregoreo, often occurs in the New Testament, referring both to a readiness for the Lord's return and watchfulness that avoids moral jeopardy, avoids moral laxness. Or a careless lifestyle. It implies a very active Christian mindset. At the same time we are accepting what God brings into our life. There is a very active Christian mindset. In which we are participating. It also points to another reality that is difficult to totally assimilate in view of God's sovereignty. And that is that we have an enemy who seeks to devour us and we are to be on full alert and resist him in the faith. We've already seen that it's not up to us to defend ourselves against the slander and the accusations of unbelievers. But we are to resist the devil who is ultimately behind our suffering. But remember that Satan can only have as much power as God allows him. But sometimes God allows him quite a bit of power. Satan is pictured here as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I heard someone say years ago, and actually there is some truth to this, but it it, it, it falls short of the reality, too, sometimes, that, that even though Satan has a pretty bad roar, he is toothless and clawless. I would imagine those who have paid the ultimate price for their faith in Christ would say, you know, he may be toothless, but he's got some pretty powerful gums. And, and he did a number on me because it's what God allowed him to do. Our enemy is vicious and he seeks to destroy him. But there is no place, and there is no place, I should say, for a fatalistic acceptance of his designs against us. We are to resist him in the faith. Which means simply, once again, that we look to the Lord to give us strength and to give us faith to endure whatever comes our way. Another reason that goes all the way back to the beginning, that we need to be very careful not to be prideful in our walk with the Lord and in our relationships with one another and our relationships with those even who seek to do us harm, but to be humble before the Lord. There's no promise that we'll be delivered from our trials, but we are promised without the slightest doubt that God loves us and that he is in control of whatever comes our way and that his design is perfect. So since Satan is often the cause of our suffering, Could we say, would it be fair to say that Satan is responsible for sickness? And since God doesn't want us to be sick, then we should pray against the devil and pray in Jesus' name, and then we'll be healed. That thinking is fairly common today, fairly broad and widespread in the church. We know that Satan was responsible for Job's sickness. We're told that Satan was responsible for the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. And we also know in both cases 
that God was ultimately in charge of those situations. So we've got an Old Testament and New Testament. God was responsible for both of those difficulties. Job accused God of causing his suffering for no good reason. In the end, God said, Job, I'm your creator. I'm the creator of the entire universe. Who are you to question me? And Job wilted in repentance. Paul said that Satan, a messenger of Satan, had been delivered to him. A thorn in the flesh. And he asked the Lord three times. He saw the hand of God in his thorn, in his flesh. And he said, three times, God, please deliver me. Could have been some physical ailment, some emotional malady that he struggled with. We're not sure. I, I, I really doubt it was a sin with which he was struggling. I don't think so. I don't think that fits the tenor of Scripture. A predilection towards maybe a particular sin, maybe. But I, I think it's more likely a physical or, or an emotional kind of issue that, that, that Paul was dealing with. And he said three times, Lord, please deliver me. But Jesus simply said, my grace is sufficient, Paul. And he said, okay, I'm good. I accept it. So is it wrong then to ask God to heal us of physical ailment, which, which the scripture indicates that clearly it's not always God's will to heal us? Is it wrong to ask? Certainly not. James 5 tells us that when we're sick, call the elders to pray and that the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, it, it, it could be. That the sickness in James 5 was caused by sin. And that's where he says, confess your faults one to another. He's saying, look, you need to confess the sin that has brought about this sickness that's in your life. Certainly all sickness is not caused by sin. There are lots of different reasons for it. But in James 5, it could be that he's saying, if it's caused by sin, confess. The elders will pray and you'll be healed. But certainly we can apply that to all kinds of illnesses. And you know, the elders have gone on many, many trips to pray for people since I've been here in 11 and a half years. And sometimes God has healed people almost immediately. It's been amazing to watch. Other times, it doesn't happen. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. He's sovereign. Is it perhaps that maybe somebody's not right? Well, I, I doubt that. It's just that God is sovereign, and he does as he will. In addition to James 5, think of all the people that Jesus healed who were sick. In fact, was there ever a time that Jesus refused to heal someone? And yet John says that the miracles that Jesus performed were signs to point us to his divinity so that we would believe on him Believe in him, literally, as John said, believe into Jesus. That means everything we have goes into believing in Jesus and we will have eternal life. You know, this next year, uh, we're going to spend a long time talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of us are working on a statement that we're going to say every week that something goes along these lines. If Jesus is not a prominent part of your testimony of salvation, you're not saved. You're not going to heaven. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. 
And John said, all of these things happen for one reason, so that you might believe into Jesus. And in Him, you will have eternal life. But Jesus did heal those people, and we know that God heals, and He brings glory to Himself when He heals. Lord, who has sinned, this man or his parents in John 9? Neither, but for the glory of God, this illness, this blindness was visited upon this man. Just because Jesus healed a lot of sick people, it does not follow that God wants everyone who is sick to be healed, if only they had a little faith. Just not there. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to His character and according to His design for our lives. The only reason sickness is here because of sin, and we are all going to succumb to the ultimate reality of death because we have all sinned. I, I know that you just can't... It, it's, it's impossible to come to Scripture if you plan to employ human logic to understand Scripture, you're going to be frustrated in the end or you're going to have some really weird views about truth. If you have to make everything fit, it's going to be difficult for that to happen. But I have never understood the idea that God wants us all to be well and He's against sickness and it's the devil and you just got to pray against the devil, stand against the devil and pray to God and everything... Why don't we die if that's the case? Old age, accidents, say that. It breaks down. The logic breaks down. It makes no sense to me. So it could be bigger than that logic that I'm employing, but, but still, what are you going to do with the fact that we all die? Peter's point in our text is that our physical condition is not really the issue. It's the state of our minds, the state of our spiritual well-being. That's what really counts. Where we are in our relationship with God. And if we are joyful, if we are living pure lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can promise you, we are impacting those around us, whether it seems like we are or not. Quoted Tertullian, the bishop of Rome in the mid to late second century often when he said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For every Christian that was killed, hundreds sprung up in his or her place. We glorify God when we are joyful and pure in the midst of suffering. And trials. And we pray, we have every right to pray that God will heal the sick and He is glorified when they are healed. And we can say, praise God. But when the next person doesn't get healed, we can't say, something went awry. God's sovereign. He's sovereign and we can't figure Him out. And what is the difference? In sickness taking someone or martyrdom taking someone or an accident taking someone. I don't get it. Well, 
isn't it the point about the state of our spiritual well-being that Jesus made in Luke 12, 4 to 5? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him. Fear God who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. It's the same point that Peter is making. It's all about the spiritual life. Suffering is not to determine how we live our lives. We're to rise above it and fear the one who is ultimately in charge. And when we fear him, this heart of trust wells up within us as we stand humbly before him, before the sovereign God. And we can do so with joy because we know that he loves us. He cares deeply for us and he does that which is only best for us. So Peter says in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now we're right back to the same place we were earlier. We want this to say that after we've suffered a little bit, then God's going to make everything all right. But, But again, this promise is for when Jesus returns. But we also come back to the principle that God works in patterns. And this is the pattern that he usually employs. While it's true that the ultimate fulfillment of these blessings is seen when Jesus returns. When we look to God in our suffering, after that initial blow, He will restore us or put things right in our hearts. You know, when when you first get that news, when things fall apart in your life, it's confusing, bewildering. It's like, I can't even make sense of this. But after that initial blow, if we look to the Lord, He will put things right in our heart. He will confirm us, causing us to become more firm and unchanging in attitude and belief. He will strengthen or empower us to live with courage in the face of a world that thinks Christians are weak. Because we do accept what comes to us as from the hand of God. And then finally, God will establish us or make us secure in our relationship with Him. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, it really just depends on what, what it is we want. I mean, if we want a life of ease and free from pain, this isn't the life for us. It's not. Because your decision to follow Jesus makes you a higher priority as a target of Satan. He, 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 it's important that He derail you. It's important that He cause you to to go off into a ditch so that others will look and say, if that's the God he serves, I don't want anything with that. If you want a life of meaning and strength, though, even in the face of difficulty, then follow Jesus closely. You know what? If you, if you decide that life is too difficult for me, hey, there are no guarantees that life is going to be easy for you. You're not really trading anything. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. Life could be just as hard without Jesus as it with, is without Him. And if you choose to go your own path, then I promise you, you will be filled with regret at the end. And yet, the opposite is also true. 
that if you follow Jesus, no matter the difficulty here, you will have no regrets at the end. And in fact, if we live in the way that he has called us and promised to enable us to live in this book of First Peter, then this life's pretty good too, no matter how tough it is. You know, I could say it's all about perspective, but at the end, it's all about Jesus. And Peter's told us that over and over and over in this letter. It's not as clear in this, this particular text as we're wrapping up, but go back and read the book of First Peter. In fact, all of you, all of us, let's read it one more time. The book of First Peter. We're done with it in about three minutes as far as preaching. But go back and read it one more time. It's all about Jesus, and it's why he concludes the body of his letter by saying in verse 11, To him be the dominion. Interesting choice of words, isn't it, by Peter that the Holy Spirit led him to write. Didn't even say to him be the glory. He said to him be the dominion. Let him rule. Let him rule over this entire world, and let him rule over your life. Humbly submit him in the closing words of Peter's letter okay it's going to be five minutes not three from a while ago he sends greetings to his readers from the church of Rome and you see that don't you you see that in this text see Babylon was code for Rome I mean it was the center of world power some 600 years earlier and it was the place where those from Judea had been sent into exile and Rome was now the center of the world's power and all Christians we were told at the very beginning of this letter are elect exiles. This is not home for us. We don't really belong here. God is preparing us for a different place. She who is also chosen refers to the collection of believers or members of the church at Rome. I was so appreciative of what Sean said about the importance of the church. That's basically what Paul is saying. I mean, Peter is saying... The church at Rome sends you greetings. And Peter told them to greet one another with the kiss of love. So let's apply that right now. Everybody stand and kiss. No, I'm just, just, let's don't. But it is a warm greeting that he has called for. What a great day for us to have the emphasis on the greeting ministry. And what a great day for several of you to say, Lord, let this go well beyond just the people who say, okay, I'm going to greet, so I'll, I, I'll be happy today. No, all of us need to have that warm spirit of hospitality and welcome any who come through these doors. Peter leaves them with the blessings of the peace of Christ. But what Peter said in verse 12 is really what grabs our attention in the closing of this letter. He declares that what he has written, though brief, is the true grace of God. It is amazing, isn't it, what all that Peter has said with few words in this relatively brief letter. Wayne Grudem tells us what he thinks that Peter was saying. The entire Christian life is one of grace. God's daily bestowal of blessings, strength, help, forgiveness, and fellowship with himself, all of which we need, none of which we ever deserve. 
All is of grace. Every day. We must stand fast in it until the day of our death. Let's let that sink in for a moment. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for life in Jesus. Thank you for power in the Holy Spirit, enablement to do what we're commanded to do but have no ability to do apart from you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Father, this life is very difficult at times. And even though we have so much, there are different kinds of trials that come with our affluence and our freedom. And life is hard. It's hard for all of us. But Lord, that absolutely should not be what determines our attitude and our spirit. Jesus should be the determining factor. Lord, thank you for life, for life eternal, for abundant life, life to the full. In this journey of suffering and grief, we find joy. Make us holy as you are holy. We're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. God, cause us to live to the place that you have called us. May we walk humbly before you all of our days. May we love mercy and act justly and walk humbly. That's what you require of us. It's not in us, Lord. We're a proud, obstinate people. Thank you for caring enough about us to break us down where necessary. But Lord, please let that process be shortened by giving us a heart that seeks after you and is willing to be humble and desires holiness. It's in the name of the one who made it possible and who lives through us. Jesus.